All right. Go ahead, open your Bibles to the book of Joel. Um, Joel is one of the minor prophets, so he'll be uh, after the major prophets in your Bible. Mine is on page 988. I don't know where yours would be, but if look after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, in between Hosea, Amos. If you go to Jonah, you're too far. Get to Joel. Um, I wanted to read 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10 first before we get started. It says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. And I'll read that for two reasons. Number one is because that's how we closed last week's message. Um, studying through the book of Jonah, uh, and we'll actually see a lot of similarities tonight in Joel um, with Jonah. Uh, and number two was because the day of the Lord is mentioned in this passage, and it's a key theme throughout all of the minor prophets, but definitely tonight in Joel. And so uh, we're going to be looking at the entire book. <clears throat> I've never preached a sermon on an entire book of the Bible before. So here we go. But it's only 5.30, so I'm sure we'll be done by 6.30. Um, <coughs> but let's buckle up. It's going to be good. Uh, before we dive in, I wanted to um, cover the five W's. Some of you probably know what that is. It's the who, what, when, where, why of this book. So who is who's, who's the author? Joel is the author. He's the prophet. He's the messenger. God is, uh, is bringing his word through Joel. And uh, he's a prophet to the south, specifically. He mentions Judah uh, instead of Israel as a whole. And uh, Joel's name in Hebrew literally means Yahweh is God. So his name alone was a reminder to the people who God is. And they're surrounded by pagan nations. Uh, they'll be uh, in exile, driven, driven away. And, and they're constantly surrounded by and reminders of people who have worshiped idols, their temptation to worship other gods. And so Joel's name alone is saying, I am Yahweh. Yahweh is God alone. No one compares to me. Uh, so what? Joel is a very unique book. It's, uh, it's actually a prophetic poem, um, and he uses a lot of vivid imagery. Uh, he gives warnings of judgment, but he also gives a message of hope and of salvation. So when now, we, when it comes to the date, we are not sure when this book was actually written. Most likely it was sometime after Judah returned from exile in Babylon, but we're not really sure. Uh, now, where? Joel is, is not ignorant, but very familiar with other biblical texts. Um, he actually quotes other um, uh, writers of the scriptures, and so um, he's very familiar with uh, God's word. Now, why did he write? Uh, Joel writes for the people to repent. That's the main reason that he, he wrote. He wrote for the people to repent or lament over their sins so that the Lord would relent of the disaster of bringing judgment. Now, there's three key themes. If you're a nerd taker, like write down these three key themes. We're going to see them over and over and over again in this book. The three key themes are the day of the Lord, and that contains judgment and mercy. So we'll see judgment and mercy in the day of the Lord. And repentance is the second theme that's turning to the Lord in godly sorrow. And the third theme is 
the promise of salvation. And we're going to see this um, physically and spiritually in this book in a very unique way. So my hope and prayer as we explore uh, this book together is that uh, we would learn something about the Lord, about his character, um, and about ourselves, uh, that we'd be honest with ourselves, and that we would see and respond to God's call to us to return to him with all of our hearts. Uh, And so let's pray before we dive into Joel chapter 1. Gracious Father, we... um, just humbly admit that we're desperate for you. We acknowledge um, your sovereign plan over all things. We praise you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect life, your sacrificial death on the cross, and your victorious resurrection that means life for us now and forever for those who trust in you. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, that you have given us this, your word, that you are speaking through your word, and that your word is like a double-edged sword piercing our hearts and our minds, and we pray that you would speak tonight through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So um, I did have a really sweet uh, Planet Earth video that I was going to show you um, that, uh, about locusts, which is great. But you can go to YouTube, and uh, we have some technical difficulty- difficulties like, like that word, speaking, is, is difficult. Um, and so we couldn't show it tonight, but um, it's, it was actually a BBC video. So if you're familiar with any of those Planet Earth videos, the guy's accent is just awesome. Um, and so go watch that um, on YouTube, and it will explain just vividly about this amazing, hideous creature that God has created, locusts. Um, and it's one of the natural phenomena of the world that he actually... Um, brings these locusts into areas of the world that uh, are just millions and billions of them that decimate places. And he says it in his, in his passage right here that he does it. This is a, a work of, of the Lord, right? And, and it gives us a good picture of what an actual locust plague looks like. What does a locust swarm look like? If you want to watch that, just go type in locust swarm. But they literally, cons- it's like, a, it's like a, a, an, a grasshopper in armor, right? Like they literally consume everything in their path. The video says it, they can grow up to 40 miles wide, just coming in and consuming everything in their path. And it brings, um, you can imagine, it's hard for us to think about it because we're not like a massive agricultural society, but it brings utter devastation to an agricultural society. Because they eat everything. Anything that, that they can consume, they consume. And so, um, as if you look at chapter 1, the remaining verses, it vividly des- describes this. It says the locusts have, it uses language like cut off, laid waste the land, splintered, stripped the trees of bark, cut off any vegetation, destroy the fields, the grounds. There's no wine, no 
fruit, no grain, no oil, no wheat, no barley, no harvest. Everything has perished. And now you probably understand a little bit better why the Lord used locusts as one of the ten plagues in the Exodus that God brought against the Egyptians to set his people free from Pharaoh. The wine, the land, the vine, the trees, the grain, the oil, the wheat, the barley, the harvest are all symbols of bounty, of, of fruitfulness, of health, of prosperity, of blessing, of joys in life. What's the rightful response to something like this, to dev- devastation? It's grieving. He, the author uses words like weep, mourn, wail, lament, because these things are no more. It's, it's all been destroyed, consumed, cut off, dried up. There's no strength, no health, no vitality. The plague is illustrative of sin, which is gradually and progressively destructive. The locust devastation is giving us a picture of the destructive nature of sin and of the devastating consequences that it brings because that's what sin does. It promises one thing and delivers another. Sin twists and perverts God's good gifts into something that is miserable, terrible, self-serving, always leads to idolatry. And we humans are prone to worship, right? We are prone to worship. We were created to worship, and we will worship something or someone. We're prone to worship the creation over the creator all the time. We prefer God's gifts over him as the giver of all good things. I heard one pastor give an illustration of uh, the deadly consequences of sin, and, uh, and he said this, like, excuse the graphic nature of it, but he said, if you want to kill a wolf in Alaska, he said, what they do is they take a double-edged blade and they soak it in seal's blood because the wolves love to eat seals. And so t- they'll take uh, a knife and they'll soak the blade in seal's blood and they'll freeze it. And then after it's frozen, they'll soak it again in seal's blood and freeze it again. And then they'll repeat this process until the blade's covered in multiple layers of seal's blood. And then they'll take the hilt of the knife and they'll bury it in the snow and the ice. And the wolves will come and smell the seal's blood and they'll come up and they'll start licking it like a lollipop. And as they're licking the seal's blood, they become intoxicated with the seal's blood. And because it's frozen, their tongues grow numb until they continue licking and there's no more seal's blood. And they're just licking and cutting their tongue on the blade of the knife, but they don't know it until they die. And that is a graphic depiction of what sin does to us, right? It, it, it numbs our hearts. It numbs our consciences until we ultimately lead to death. And that's what we see the, this picture. Sin dries up, right? It, it, it extracts joy. Which, look at verse 12. It's, it says, gladness dries up. What, what was meant for life? What was meant for fruitful, lush, and vibrant things? There's no yield. There's no harvest. There's no joy for man. And that's what sin does. And why? Why does God cause this to happen? What should be the response of the people? He wants repentance. He wants humility. He wants grief. Look at verse 13. It says the drought and the destruction is so severe. That there's no fruit, no grain. There's, it's so bad that there's, there's nothing to even worship the Lord in the temple with. They could do no grain offerings. 
<coughs> in verse 14, it says, this is how serious this has become. The prophet of God is calling all the inhabitants of the land to fast. He says, everybody needs to stop what they're doing and fast and cry out to the Lord. Prepare to not eat or drink anything because this is deadly serious. This is the most important thing that anybody could do. So stop what you're doing and cry out to God. And as I was studying, I realized, like, isn't this what the Ninevites did? When Jonah comes in and, and he preaches judgment, right, they, they immediately called for a fast amongst all of the people from the greatest to the least. And they put on sackcloth and ashes and, and they, they prayed maybe the Lord would relent of this disaster. They cried out for mercy. The message here is repent and lament and God might just relent from his wrath if we do that. But what, is, what does repentance look like? Right? How do we know we're genuinely repenting? How do we know that someone is actually repenting? Well, he gives us some physical manifestations of repentance throughout the book. He says, weep, wail, right? have passionate grief over your sin, mourn, have humility, fasting, sackcloth, physical, right? Crying out to the Lord in prayer. These are all examples of repentance. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Now, I don't want you to think about anybody else right now. I know how tempting it is when you hear a sermon to be like, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. I hope they're listening. Don't think about anybody else right now. I want you to think about your sin and your sin only. When was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time you were broken over your sin? When was the last time that you were honest with the Lord about the idols that are hiding in your heart and in your life? When was the last time you you told the Lord, I'm not okay with this sin in my life that nobody knows about? I'm not okay with it anymore. When was the last time you were honest with the Lord and you said, I don't want to return to that sin. I keep returning to the same sin over and over again. And it seems like I confess, I confess, but then I, I go back to it. I don't want to return to it anymore. I don't want to protect my sin anymore. I don't want to play around with sin. I want to hate this sin like you hate it. I want to return to you. I don't want to return to it. Because there's a massive warning here in verse 15 if we don't repent. It says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. This is one of the key themes. The day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment. It's also a day of mercy. It's merciful. I know it's hard to think about this, but it's merciful for God to tell us the truth about our sin. It's merciful for him to tell us where it leads. And it's just for him, being holy, to condemn our sin, to bring judgment over our sin. One author defined the day of the Lord like this. He said, the day of the Lord is a time of direct divine intervention in human history to reorder affairs on earth. 
This theme is associated with judgment upon Israel and Judah and weaves its way through the minor prophets, always anticipating God's intervention and fulfillment. So while this locust plague was temporary, right, it was a warning of ultimate judgment to come. And you can tell from verse 16 that there is no joy in judgment. God doesn't get joy when he judges people. It says, is not the food cut out before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of the Lord? So the day of the Lord is nothing to trifle with. It's nothing to play with, right? God confronts evil and will not tolerate sin amongst his people. In chapter 2, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So the picture that the prophet is painting here is of a destructive army in chapter 2. And it's terrifying. Now, we're not sure whether this is just a, another description of the locust swarm or if this was a real army. But either way, it's a, a picture of, of darkness, which is always associated with God's judgment. And in this section, in chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 10, he bookends the entire section with darkness. This is the sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So what's shocking in this passage is that this is the Lord's army. He's the one who's leading it. He's the one who's bringing destruction to his people. Why? Because it's a wake-up call. He has a purpose for it. And he tells us, through the prophet Joel in verses 12 and 13, what his purpose is. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So God wants his people to return to him. God is looking for wholehearted repentance. If you're living in sin, you know it, even if nobody else does. You know it. You might be able to hide from everybody else, but you can't hide from God. He sees, he knows, and his word to us today is return to me with all of your heart because God can't stand half-hearted obedience. He doesn't want half-hearted love. God actually hates lukewarm devotion. He demands and he deserves our whole heart. What does he want right now more than anything else? He wants visible signs of repentance. All right, look at verse 12. Fasting. That's what he wants. Saying, God, I want you more than I want food. I need you more than I need food and drink. I need you more. Or when was the last time that you were that desperate for the Lord? Right, we, we usually don't have a lot of felt needs. We usually have full bellies. We're usually not worried about where our next meal will come from. When's the last time you were desperate before the Lord? It says weeping, shedding tears over your sin, which grieves the Holy Spirit. Weeping because your sin causes division. 
It brings brokenness into your life and your relationships and in fellowship with your God. In mourning. Mourning, he separates mourning from weeping, right? Because mourning is expressing deep sorrow over a loss. Because sin always brings loss. It always brings emptiness. Mourning is expressing deep regret and sadness over sin. But if you look closely, God wants more than just visible, physical signs of repentance. He doesn't just want fasting. He doesn't just want weeping. He doesn't just want mourning. Because look at verse 13. It says something very interesting. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Because you see, some people were very quick to respond with confession and outward displays of mourning, like tearing their clothes. And that's why he says, don't tear your clothes. I don't want superficial repentance. I don't want surface level repentance. I want deep down core repentance. So there's a massive difference between confession and repentance. Confession says, I did it. I admit, I did it. I'm guilty. And you know what? Confession is good. We're instructed to confess our sins to the Lord and to one another, right? To come clean, to be transparent. However, that's not what the Lord is asking for. He's asking for repentance because repentance is deeper than confession. Confession says, I did it. Repentance says, I've sinned against you, O Lord. I've done what's evil in your sight. I've rebelled against you. I've ran to other things and other people besides you. I've taken your good gifts and I've used them for my own selfish means. And I'm returning to you. I'm turning to you now and I'm turning away from my sin. I'm running away from my sin and I'm running to you. I'm changing my mind. Repentance is a reorientation of our thoughts, of our desires, of our affections. It's reorienting our minds and our hearts to his way, his will, his word. That's completely different from confession. It's way deeper. The reason we read Psalm 51 together during corporate reading of scripture is because that's the heart cry of repentance. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Because if you change my heart, guess what's going to happen? Your behaviors will change. Only God can change the heart, right? And God's not looking for behavior modification here. He's looking for a whole heart change. Create me a clean heart. Give me a willing spirit to obey you. I want to know you. I want to love you. And I want to obey you. So a picture of what rending your heart is, because the word rend means to tear, right? What does that look like? In, in Psalm 51, 17, it, des- it defines it. It says that God is looking for a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So God wants us to come to him in brokenness. He doesn't expect you to come to him all fixed up, all cleaned up, all whole. He expects you to come broken. He expects you to come humble. He wants our hearts to break for what breaks his heart. He wants contrition which is a remorseful heart. He wants a tender heart. 
He wants a sensitive heart. He wants to remove your heart of cold stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is a heart that beats for him. It's a heart that feels for him, for his glory. It's a heart that rejoices when you see him. It's a heart that rejoices when you read his word. It's a heart that has affection for him. It's a heart that feels for what his heart feels for, that's sensitive for for what his heart is sensitive for, that enjoys being with him. That's a different kind of heart. So he's calling us for visible and invisible signs of repentance in this passage. This is a a total repentance, an all-in, a whole being type of turning from sin to God. And I couldn't help while studying to think about the prodigal son. He, he took his father's gifts and he squandered all of it in selfish living. He wanted to, to see what it was like, what the sinful fleeting pleasures were like. And, and then when he hit rock bottom, he realized, I probably should return to my father. And the prodigal son didn't know what he was going to get when he returned to his father because he forgot what his father was like. He forgot the character of his father. But Joel reminds us of the character of our, of our God. Look at Joel 13. It says, return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding with steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is who God is. He's gracious. He's merciful. And this is what God is like. He's patient. He's loving. He's faithful. So the prodigal's father saw him from a distance, and he ran to him and embraced him with open arms and welcomed him in love and forgiveness. The staggering mercy of our Heavenly Father embraces rebel God-haters and envelops them with his loving kindness and amazing sovereign grace. Verse 13 is a, a quote from Jonah 4.2. Joel is quoting Jonah in this passage because this is Israel's creedal statement about who God is, who their God is. Yahweh is God, and this is what he's like. This passage is found eight times throughout the Old Testament. It's amazing how patient the Lord is with us. If you just read through the Old Testament, you're like blown away. You're like, the Israelites are stupid. How could you be so dumb when you see all these things that God did? And then you realize, oh, I'm them. I I, I do stupider things than them because I have the entire counsel of God's word. I see what God did. I see he, how he sent Jesus. I see what Jesus did in my place for me. And yet, I continue to return to my sin. How patient is God? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. So will you repent and turn to the Lord? Because if you do, you're gonna find grace and mercy and love and forgiveness all because of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Who knows (coughs) whether he might turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Is this not what we see in Jonah 3, 9 with the Ninevites? The people's only hope, all of their hope rested in God's sovereign hands. All of their hope was in his hands because God's sovereign hands exercise sovereign freedom in judgment, in restoration, in grace, and in mercy. And what we see in verses 14 through 17 is a total community, all-encompassing cry for mercy. 
It says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. There's nothing more serious than this. I don't know about you. Nobody could call me away from my honeymoon. I wasn't answering the phone. Phone's off. Don't care. I'm with my bride. Right? Here, Joel's calling all people. No matter what you're doing, all ages, all stages of life, no matter what you're doing, no matter what season of life, no matter what circumstances, no matter what situation you're in, whatever you're doing, stop, cry out to the Lord. It's that important. It's more important than a baby crying for a mother's milk. 2.18 is where the book takes a turn. And we see God's response, God's promises, God's judgment, and God's mercy. Let's look at the second half of the book together. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, in verses 19 through 24, you'll see a complete reversal of what we saw in chapter 1. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. Where do good gifts come from? The Lord. I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Where does ultimate satisfaction come from? Nothing in this world only comes from the Lord. Sin says, hey, do this. It'll please you. Lies. Satisfaction, pleasure comes from the Lord. I saw, the psalmist knew this. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's nothing more satisfying than being with Jesus. In verse 21, it says, Fear not, O land, and be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. This is good news even for the cattle. Right? Does God not have mercy even on the cattle? Compassion. Remember how Jonah ended? Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. You can eat something. You got dandelion salads. The trees bear fruit again. The fig tree, the vine, they give their full yield. You can have wine again because there's grapes again. Be glad, children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured out for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Because the Lord chooses out of his mercy to have pity on people. And we see here that God alone brings full physical agricultural restoration. The Lord is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over land. He's sovereign over seed. And he's sovereign over salvation. The Lord restores joy to the people because true joy comes from the Lord. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Only God could do this. God sends the judgment. It's temporary. It's a warning. Return to me. And God alone is the one who restores. If you had to describe verse 25 in one word, it would be grace. Joel 2.25 is grace. Those people did not deserve it. They didn't deserve for any of it to be restored. They did nothing to earn it. It's grace. 
God is able to bring an overabundance of harvest. Only God can cause trees and plants and fields to yield a harvest that's greater than normal. In verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. The fruit of repentance is satisfaction. It's fullness and it's worship. Satisfaction is contentment in Christ. So how do you know that you've actually repented before? Have you ever been satisfied with Christ alone? Is Jesus enough in your life? Have you come to a point in time where you were like, you know what? I want you more than anything else. Jesus, you're enough. I'm content in you alone. That's full satisfaction. Fullness, you have no need. I'm full. We're going to be really full in just a few minutes at the church fellowship mill. And you're going to be like, I can't put anything else in my body. I'm full, right? Like this is fullness in Christ. I can't fit any, I don't want anything else. I'm satisfied. I'm full. It's enough. And worship, you can't help but praise him for what he's done. Truly, the Lord has dealt wondrously with us. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. It's almost like he wanted us to remember that. He says it twice here. Joel had Isaiah 28 on his mind, which says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What, was, what did Adam and Eve have in the garden before sin entered the world? No shame. What did they have after sin entered the world? They were full of shame. Right? Romans 10, 11 says, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So who is him? Who is this stone? Who is this rock? Who are we instructed to believe in? Who alone removes shame? Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Those who trust in Jesus are forgiven. They're they're declared not guilty. Their shame is removed. And in place of their shame, they're given joy and gladness. Can you truly say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I know him. I know that the gospel is the power of God to save. I know that he alone can remove my shame. And I know that he has done wonderful things for me. And listen to the Lord's promise. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. This was better than any agricultural fulfillment. Like this is, this is God saying, this is, I am your God and I'll dwell with you. Isaiah 49 says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. What's better than living in God's presence without shame? Nothing. This is a restored Eden. That's what he's talking about. That's what he envisions here. What's better than knowing God? Absolutely nothing. There's nothing in this world better than knowing God because God is matchless. He's incomparable. There's no one like him. And the fruit of repentance is awesome. But there's more. Look at verse 28 and 29. 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So the Lord chooses out of his great mercy to not only have pity and restore physically and agriculturally, but God alone can restore spiritually. And that's the ultimate fruit of repentance salvation. God's spirit in God's people, no matter the gender or socioeconomic status. This is grace. God graciously giving us his spirit to dwell inside of us. And this is a prophecy of Joel that is fulfilled in the New Testament. In Acts Chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for, jo- you heard from me, for John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So remember, this is post-resurrection Jesus talking right here. He's about to ascend back into heaven and leave his disciples so they think alone by themselves on the earth. But he says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit becomes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 2, while the disciples are gathered together in a room on the day of Pentecost, what do we read? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And everyone around them is astonished because they hear the glories of God being proclaimed in their own language. And this is where Peter, this is incredible, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches in Acts 2. Verse 14, he starts. And what does he do? He preaches out of Joel chapter 2. This is unbelievable. This is fascinating. Right, the, the one moment in human history after the Son of God raised from the dead leaves his disciples and says, I'll never leave you. I'll always be with you. Sends the Spirit to dwell with his people. And what does Peter do? But he uses this text right here to preach the first sermon ever in the early church. And he preaches out of the Minor Prophets. G.K. Bill said this, Peter explains that the events taking place at Pentecost are the beginning fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, that God would pour out his spirit on his people, that all classes of people in the covenant community would prophesy. The spirit's gifts, formerly limited to prophets, kings, and priests, is universalized to all of God's people, every race, young, old, male, female, everyone. What an absolutely incredible beginning to God's church. Peter also quotes Joel 2, 28-32, where God spoke through Joel and fulfilled his promise here at Pentecost. Look at verses 30-32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and smoke, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So some scholars say that 
These are cosmic events described in verses 30 and 31. And then they're symbolic, and some say that they're literal. Either way, they signal judgment. And a miraculous, wondrous event is happening. The greatest miracle of all is salvation, which is what we see at Pentecost. Souls being saved is the greatest miracle of all. Look at verse 32, which Paul quotes in Romans 10. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's sovereign salvation. He alone preserves a remnant and calls his children to repentance. And one of the main things that we want to take away from this entire book is that physical restoration is good, and we can enjoy it. But physical restoration, eternal salvation, is better because the day of the Lord is near for all nations. It says, the Lord's judgment for all nations and all peoples is what is on clear display in the rest of the book of Joel. If you look at the last chapter, chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about judgment over the nations, but it's also all about salvation for God's people. The Lord judging the nations and refuse, he's judging nations because those people refuse to acknowledge that he is God, that Yahweh is God, and that God dwells with his people. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but it's also a day of salvation. Verse 1 in chapter 3 starts with restoration for Judah and declares judgment on all rebellious peoples. And then we see again in, in Joel three fourteen the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's important for us to understand that this phrase has an immediate historical fulfillment, but it's also not complete. It can refer to also a future, greater day of the Lord to come. It's one of those already but not yet fully fulfilled truths that we find in the scriptures. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This is cosmic language that he's using. You can jot down Revelation 6 and you can go read that later, specifically verses 12 through 17, and see the similarities here. But in Joel 3, 17, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. No one stands in God's judgment. No one stands in God's judgment, except for those who stand in Christ alone. Joel was inspired by God to call people to repentance Repent of your sin, trust and rely upon the Lord alone to know he is God and that he restores and dwells with his people. All the nations will be judged. All the peoples of all the earth who've ever lived, whoever will live, will know that he alone is God. The Lord's power of restoration is on full display here and this is how he closes this amazing book. He closes it with good news with restoration of the land and full blessing. Just listen to how vivid this imagery is in Joel 3.18. And in that day, the mountains will shall drip sweet wine. Watch out, Baptists. And, and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Everything that went wrong is going to be made right. Everything that was dried up is going to be consumed with full replenishment. This is a picture of a restored Eden. 
Physical restoration is good, but spiritual restoration is better because Pentecost was just the start of the early church because God is not done pouring out his spirit on his people. He's still building his church. He's still pouring out his spirit on his people. Today, followers of Jesus indwelt by the spirit of God are to continue witnessing We're to continue to tell people of this fulfilled prophecy, of this Jesus, of this amazing sovereign grace. We are to proclaim the day of the Lord's salvation, that Jesus is Lord, that that you hear this good news of the gospel. You should repent and lament over your sin, bow your knee with all your heart and surrender to King Jesus because locusts aren't the greatest threat. And famine isn't the greatest threat. And plagues aren't the greatest threat. And pandemics aren't the greatest threat. And armies aren't the greatest threat. Sin, which leads to separation from a holy God and deserves his wrath and death, is the greatest threat. Sin is the plague that will consume eternally, not just temporarily, if you don't repent and turn to the Lord. One author said, Joel's thinking about the big picture here, and he's saying to God's people, don't limit your hopes to just some kind of temporal deliverance. Be sure you place your faith in God for eternal deliverance so that you can know that you are saved, not just politically or economically, but saved to eternal life. Jesus is still in the business of pouring out his spirit on his people to live empowered and restored lives today. After Peter got done preaching that first sermon at Pentecost, the people responded like this. And when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart, or their hearts were rent. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. May God open our eyes to see that he is not only a holy and just God, but a very gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Hear his words. Repent. Grieve over your sin and let the Lord restore you. And when you do, rivers of living water will flow from within you. From Jesus. Because he's the true vine. Way better than grapes on a vine. Way better than any wine, than any milk, than any honey, than any fullness that you can put in your body from this world. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll close how Joel started. Tell your children. Tell your children of this. Let your children tell their children. And let their children tell another generation of his grace. Let's pray. Father of grace, of mercy, of patience, of steadfast love and faithfulness. We praise you for your word. We praise you right now that you have given us so many warnings 
It's a miracle that some of us are still alive in the room right now for all of the foolish decisions we've made, for all the stupid things we've done, for all the harm we've brought to ourselves, to other people, to our spouses, to our family, to our friends, to you ultimately, oh God. Our sin has grieved you above all else. And yet you are patient. And right now, you call for us to rend our hearts and not our garments. Oh God, that you would give us eyes to see clearly our sin. For us to repent, be broken over our sin, and turn to you and find you true and faithful, just and kind, that we would receive forgiveness, that we would know that you alone can remove our shame and you can give us joy and satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.